0: Busy old day on your radio. Plenty to hear from the day. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed.
1: Up until the point of getting involved with Anglo, everything had gone really well for Sean Quinn. Everything he touched had turned to gold. He was essentially the border billionaire with the Midas touch. And I think that gave him a sense of invincibility. You said
2: they have it in their blood that they've turned to violence uh, in a way that people from South Tipperary won't.
3: I'm not saying everybody does that. I'm saying it happens more frequently in border areas and that's been the history, unfortunately, the deplorable history of those areas.
4: I am constantly changing, yet always the same. Losing my way is part of the game. The end is my beginning as I journey alone, surrounded by love. We are all heading home.
0: And we'll start in the morning and on today with Claire Byrne, that three-part RTE TV series, Quinn Country, looking at the life and career of Kevin, businessman and once Ireland's richest man, Sean Quinn.
5: When you set the tone for war, when you set the tone to Quinn and use those heavy hands and put on security people all around the place, up the mountain, a hundred people to make sure that everything was OK, in a place that was so peaceful... We had come through from 1973 to 2000 and there was trouble in the north and there was people being killed and shot right, left and centre. And the Quinn group worked their way through all of that and never had any trouble. And for them to come in and do what they'd done I think it was absolutely disgraceful. And I believe that the last day I take a breath.
2: Joining me in the studio now to talk more about the series is editor of The Currency, Ian Kyo, who you will have seen in the documentary. Ian, you appeared extensively in it. Good morning to you. Thanks morning, for Claire. coming in. Where to begin? I think the whole country is, is talking about this, um, which we saw over the last three nights. But just to sort of contextualise our chat before we start, the scale of Sean Quinn's debt, just remind us of that and the legacy of that for, for taxpayers, for the state.
1: Yeah, for, for everybody. Um, so if you look at what Sean Quinn owed, lost on his gamble in Anglo-Irish Bank, that was 2.3 billion. Now we know we've become desensitized to billions and millions, but 2.3 billion. Uh and he owed a further one point three to bondholders, so they were international banks and financiers. So that was the sum of his actual debt, was about £3.6 and through his family. And then on the other side of it, I think what we're still living with the legacy of today was the essential collapse of Quinn insurance. And for all that Sean Quinn said about the amount of money Quinn insurance was making throughout the three parts, um, when administrators appointed by the central bank went in and started looking under the bonnet, they essentially uncovered a €1 billion black hole. Sean Quinn And his insurance company wasn't putting aside, setting aside the right amount for future claims. So it makes it seem as if you're making loads of money. But in reality, those claims are going to come due at some point. Mm -hmm. And they came due to the sum of about one billion euro. And we're still paying that through the Quinn levy on people's motor insurance policies. That's 2%,
2: isn't it, for everybody?
1: And that's looking like that's going to be there for another five or six years.
2: Mm -hmm. What we saw, um, particularly in the first part, was how he built that company from nothing from scratch. I mean, clearly we're dealing with somebody here who was a very astute businessman, a really hard worker, very successful at what he did. How does that tally with the gamble that he took that got him into the position that he's in?
1: I think they're actually two sides of the same coin. So if you look at how he built the business, and I think he was probably the best industrialist, a pure industrialist, like like they have in Texas or the states of guys who build things out of the ground and keep on growing and growing and actually shape the locality. I think that was something that was really striking about watching the documentary and it was beautifully shot. But you got a sense of Quinn had left a physical imprint on his locality. So there was the Quinn trucks up and down the roads, the windmills. Um, you had the quarries, the factories. The giant queue was emblazoned everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and up until the point of getting involved with Anglo, everything had gone really well for Sean Quinn. Everything he touched had turned to gold he was essentially the border billionaire with the Midas touch and i think that gave him a sense of invincibility because when you do everything well and you succeed in everything over the course of your life you take on vested interests you corner markets you expand internationally you turn a, a gravel in your backyard into a billion euro empire you think you can do everything and everything is going to work out for, me, for you and that was his view with regard to anglo that because everything had gone so well for him in his life, this would too. So even when everybody, even Sean Fitzpatrick and David Dromer saying, we have a problem here, he continued to invest in in Anglo, continued to buy shares, continued his stake building, because he Mm -hmm. believed that whatever Sean Quinn, and at this point was referring to himself in the third person, Mm -hmm. he believed that whatever Sean Quinn did would succeed and he couldn't fail. So the success of what he did in those early days contributed massively to his failure because he was unable to admit that something he did would fail.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I get that. But I also see that in order to build the business that he did, he had to make lots of difficult decisions and difficult calls that would have required a lot of late nights of thinking and working through balance sheets and, you know, making difficult choices. And I just don't see how that tallies with saying, I'm going to chase the loss here, even though it's tanking.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, and, and Quinn himself has admitted, why did I do it? Why did yeah. I do it? I, I still, I mean, there's, there's a sense out there at one point that he wanted to own the bank, right? So and a lot of people have commented on this. A number of former Quinn board directors have talked about it. And if you think about it, it's actually a logical follow on. So you go from, you know, building materials to cement. You need an insurance company to insure them all. What's the next thing? It's a bank. So it was actually conceivable he fancied having a, a cut at Anglub.
0: And back to the documentary.
5: The
1: whole story turned to the Quinn
5: stealing taxpayers' assets. So we just give them an ideal opportunity to kill us. And they did. Everything was put together for 36, 37 years. It was all gone. We we took on something we should never have taken on. We took on an institution, we took on a government, and all strands of it, and we just were just, stupid.
2: Sean Quinn there. I want to play a clip now of Bernie Maguire for two reasons. She's the sister of Sean Quinn. It's very interesting what she has to say. But she's also one of only two women who appeared over three nights of this uh, documentary. Ian, you didn't make this. You were asked to be part of it. But I think it was extraordinary and it hasn't gone unnoticed that Bernie and uh, Patricia Quinn were the only two women who featured in a speaking role. Now, Bernie Quinn said she felt like and the Quinn family felt like Sean was used as a scapegoat.
4: The rural, culture man on the border area was an easy target. It almost seemed as if he was the fall guy. They made it seem as if he was the cause of the recession in Ireland. Even though the banks were broken, the government was broken, there was a whole lot. And they just couldn't fathom that people were so loyal to him down here. And then we
2: go to Sean Quinn's description of the moments before he got into that white van which brought him to Mountjoy. This is quite extraordinary.
5: When Elizabeth Dunn said, look, we've given him nine weeks and he has a week up whatever time he needs to consider it, what he wants to say or do. I just took up in the court and I said, I'm going this evening. I went to the bar along with a couple of friends of mine, local locals here. And I had two pints of beer and two or three double brandies. And headed, headed straight for the white for the white van and into Mountjoy. What was it like when
1: that door closed behind you? I was drunk.
2: What do you think, Ian? That tells us about Sean Quinn and his personality.
1: I think it shows how tough he is, how teak tough he is. And I think that's you know, if, if you trace his business career, be it taking on CRH, taking on vested interests, and not giving in. Uh, and we saw the not giving in part in his downfall. I mean, what, what's also interesting around what was coming out of there was the sense of victimhood, of, mm-hmm. you know, it was all taken from us, that we were somehow set up, and I think Bernie Quinn put it, the, the fall guy. The facts don't bear that out. I mean, one of the great uh, conceits within the whole thing is that the government wanted to take him down. They didn't. The central bank offered Sean Quinn Numerous opportunities to retain control of his insurance company. All he had to do was to compromise. He refused to do it, and again, that sort of non, non compromise, non compromised mm-hmm. nature. Uh, the banks and the bondholders gave him numerous opportunities and he wouldn't compromise with those either. Yeah,
2: you put it very well in the documentary last night when you said, you know, these people coming down from Dublin. And and really, that's all it seemed Sean Quinn and his family could see and his supporters at that time too.
1: Yeah, and it was a real time and place about it, you know. So you're coming, you know, after the financial crisis, austerity is still there, the troika are still there. Uh, and people in the country are feeling it a lot worse. Their post offices are shutting down. The banks that have managed to survive the crash are shutting down their rural branches. And people are looking at it and saying, well, this guy did so much for us that it, it kind of imbued that rural-urban divide. And Quinn played it for all it was worth. The simple farmer's son, the border from the country, an unorthodox figure, an outsider. But I think that sort of reservoir of deep support was for Quinn, but I think it was also an anti-austerity feeling at that time mm-hmm. and a sense that rural Ireland had been left behind.
2: All right, well, let's hear some more now from the series. The attack on Kevin Lonnie comes up a number of times in the interviews. Here's one of the exchanges around that.
5: The whole thing was a mess. I mean, the whole attacks that happened, uh, people were pointing the finger at me. I had no hand, act or part in any attack I suppose I played a bit of football and you, you, get a, you, you get a box in the mouth or you you give one or get one and you have to get on with life. There's no point in crying about it. You just get on and move on.
2: We got an insight into the previous relationship between Sean Quinn and Kevin Lonnie. There's some old footage shown of the presentation of an award.
5: I'd like to make a presentation to somebody that had a major influence on the success of Quinn director over the past 10 years. Somebody has to have the respect of their colleagues. And that's the important thing in life. Kevin Lunny always had the respect of his parents.
2: But then when he was asked about uh, Kevin Lunny in the documentary, he made his views about him very clear.
6: Did you have anything
7: to do with the attack on Kevin Lunny? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely
5: nothing. Why would I, why would I bother my head with Kevin Lunny? Just think about why would I bother my head with Kevin Lunny? One thing I think that somebody should ask Kevin Lunny: Why was he attacked? What they have done over the last six, seven years, and the level of betrayal is probably unprecedented in the history of this
1: state. Ian. You know what, you just listen to the line, why was he attacked? Uh, And I think that's a really unfair line for Sean Quinn to make. Because no matter, and I don't think Kevin Lunny's done anything, there's absolutely no evidence against him. And every person I talk to say he's a great business and a really nice family man and loves his locality. Uh, but to ask that question, nobody deserves, nobody, regardless of what they've done, deserves to get put into the back of a horse box and be tortured. And I think Quinn's lack of empathy for Kevin Lunny is striking and sobering.
0: Ian Keogh there talking to Claire Byrne in the morning and later we'll hear Alan Dukes and his comments about people living in the border area. And in the afternoon John called Joe after something he spotted when he was making a much needed donation to St Vincent de Paul in the run up to the busy Christmas period.
8: I recently received a letter from the St Vincent de Paul looking for donations for help over Christmas,
9: uh-huh.
8: um, which is great, and I have no problem okay. donating money to the Vincent and Paul, but they're looking for my, uh, one of the options they give you to donate is uh, they have a form you fill out, uh, they're looking for your bank details. Okay. No, it's, they're looking for your credit card number, your... Uh, expiry date and the security number on the back and your name.
7: Oh, the full details, okay.
8: And these are the very thing that the guards and the banks are advising us not to divulge to anyone.
7: But you are putting it in an envelope.
8: Yeah, but the envelope is marked, uh, Vincent de Paul.
7: Oh, you're you so- oh, Okay, so you're saying any- anyone with malfeasance who saw those, envelopes, saw those envelopes and had access to them illegally, so to speak. Wouldn't, yes. you're, you're, it's not a lucky dip you're picking out an envelope hoping there's credit card details. You look for the St. Vincent de Paul envelope if you're of that bent. Yes,
8: that's what I'm saying, yeah. yeah. Um,
7: and how, how distinctive is the envelope?
8: It's very distinctive. Um, it's marked with the Vincent de Paul with their address. Uh, it's blue. Like, if I was somebody of a mind to try and do something like that, or uh, I'd have no problem picking out these envelopes.
7: But surely there's very few people of a mind to rip well, off sure that, a great yeah, organization like Vincent yeah. de Paul.
8: Yeah, I know. Yeah, 100%. Um, and I'm not saying it's in the Vincent de Paul, it could be in the post office, it could be. Uh, somebody going into an old person's house would see the envelope on the table. Okay. Uh, or any house. Yes, exactly.
9: That's,
7: That's
8: my only issue with it. And uh, um, I, I've contacted the Vince in Nepal and uh, they agreed with what I was saying, but uh, seemingly they've been doing this for years. My only issue with it is that it's the very thing that we've been told not to divulge to anyone. And the Vincent Nepal are writing out to people looking for these
7: details. And Puss say mailers should apply the same care and attention in relation to their personal details in the mail as they do online or elsewhere. Don't transmit key data in one message, i.e. mail or email or whatever. Exactly. And the St. Vincent de Paul say, as is common practice for many charities, our uh, SVP blue envelopes have been dis- distributed d- during the annual appeal since 2017, um we, there's never been an issue with anyone's bank details being misused. About ten percent of all donations to us come through the post. The blue envelopes are delivered by on post and as part of their service, there are no names or addresses on envelopes delivered in this way. Um Correct, yep. so, you, so you but basically what you're what you're what you're worried about, John, is that the envelope is identifiable.
8: Exactly. And if I was someone who was looking for bank details, uh, I know exactly what's in those envelopes. There's either one of two things. Mm. There's either a cheque, which is uh, probably a safe way send the money,
7: mm-hmm.
8: or else your bank details.
7: Okay, no, and it's all
8: your details. It's your name, it's your address, it's the security code, it's the credit card
7: number expiry date and all yes. yeah yeah mm-hmm. and they say it's 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 sent to a po box number yep. a free post number so that means a free post number means that you you the the recipient goes and collects the delivery at the local sorting office
8: i presume so
7: yeah and, so uh, now so in other words not, not that well i generally wouldn't be worried cuz they're so brilliant um yeah so they never get into the hands of a postman or postwoman. I, I even hate putting it that way. But in other words, the chain, the chain of possibility for malfeasance, John, is reduced. Yeah, but it's,
8: it's my, as I said, my issue is it's a marked envelope. I okay. don't know how many people's hands it's going through before it gets to that
7: postbox. Okay, and I take your other point as well. Someone could come into a house and, you know, if the marked envelope is there and it's sealed, you know, there's details in it. Yes. Can you put cash in that envelope, by the way?
8: It doesn't. It doesn't look for cash. Uh, it's not one of the suggested ways, but uh, I'm sure there's nothing stopping okay. people putting cash in it if they want. You know.
0: Well, that's John. Then Edward called Joe.
8: I'm listening with interest to
10: it, and there is a way around it. Okay. That's what I do because I get, quite regularly get post into or you know, through the letterbox, and it's the donations to different charities. And what I do is I have my debit card, and that's linked to an account. Okay. And there's a certain amount of money in that account. And I never have much money in that account. If, if say I wanted to donate uh, €100 to Concern.
9: Yeah.
10: So I would ring them up. I never put any details on paper. I'd say, I'd like to donate uh, uh, €100. Euro. Yeah, why are you using my debit card? Before I ring up, I would, I would go onto online, onto my own, my own banking. And in my debit card account, there would be maybe €50. Euro. That's all I ever keep it at any one time. So I would transfer the Euro €100 Euro into my debit card from a separate account that's not linked to my credit card. Okay. It's not linked to my debit card. It's just a separate account that can keep my savings in. You can't access it at all. Only I can access it. And okay. then I would transfer that €100 Euro into my debit card account. And immediately then I would do the transaction and it would be transferred. And if for some reason, someone was able to get into my debit card account, or whatever, because yeah. when you' are giving your details even over the phone, there's yeah. a very, very small likelihood i'm not saying it's never happened to me where somebody could could produce could your details to, to f- make a fraudulent activity, but at any given time, there would be only maybe one hundred or fifty yeah. euro in my debit card account because I 'm always uh, cognizant of the fact that there could be fraud committed on it. And with your credit card, and once you do transactions on your credit yeah. card, and it's happened to me several times over the years where I've looked at my credit card, I thought, oh, I didn't do that transaction. And I'd ring up and I'd say to the bank, and I'd say, okay, yeah. and I'm covered for that. The bank would say, yeah, we see, you, you weren't in Galway yeah. yesterday, or you weren't in New York or whatever, some ridiculous place around yeah. the world. And they'd say, yeah, we'll, we'll debit that back into your account. In- so touch- if you want to really safeguard yourself, okay. only keep in your debit card account what you need on any given day. Because you can go into the bank and you can set up a separate account, separate from your credit card, separate from your debit card, and keep whatever money you need in that account. And you can transfer it as you need it into your debit card account. And that's that's, that's the way I get around it. Because it's so prevalent now, uh, fraud, that to give your details, even over the phone, you're taking a chance. Uh Because when you do talk to these... uh, Charlie comes here and say, by the way, we're switching off the recording now because all, com- all their conversations are recorded. Yeah. And they'll say, we're switching off because you're giving your details now and we're switching off your, your, uh, the
7: yeah. card so you can give us your details.
0: Well, that's Edward there and you might have heard young Leo in the
7: background. He was about to take centre stage. Uh, uh, Edward, can I ask, uh, are you a busy man generally? I'm busy. Yeah, I'm always busy. Yeah. Okay. So just my, my
10: grandson, my grandson's crying from you now.
7: Okay. What are you doing on this? What are you doing? How is he? Is he okay? Say that again. Is the, is he? What's his name? Uh, Leo. Leo. Oh, good.
10: No, I'm minding him, and his mother's gone out, and so i mind him, and he's and he, he, he's
7: losing sight of me. He gets very really upset. Okay. I just I was going to try and ask you.
10: So he's with his granny now.
7: He's very clingy.
10: If he's grand. He's great. He'll uh, calm d- down now. And a way, but that's, that's, that's my solution to the problem. You know, yeah. do that. Set up a separate account, which is separate from your credit card, separate from your debit card, and transfer money as you need
7: it. Yeah,
10: exactly. You know, that, but I have to go, John.
7: Okay, mind yourself. Very very I'll tell you. We said hello. Okay, fair We're play, okay, to okay, yeah Okay. You see what I was going to? I, 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 I has his granddad. Do you yeah, hear him? No, come here, come here, come here.
9: Uh, He's up in his lap.
7: He's, like, young, Look. Hey, He's calming hey, him hey, down. He's calming hey, him down. Oh, you're <laughs> okay, okay. Oh, you're granddaddy.
9: You're granddaddy.
7: It's like that, um...
9: Oh, you're okay.
10: You're okay. You're okay. Did you hear me on the radio? Did you hear me on
9: the
10: uh, radio? Yeah.
7: Give him a hug. Give him a hug.
0: Ah, oh, that's some grand magic right there. Young Leo, star of LiveLine in the afternoon. And on the Darcy show, the perfect roast dinner. It's an obsession for podcasters Eimear MacLeisett and Esther O'More donoughy uh,
11: Now, uh, it's the 1st of December, which means you might be starting your preparations for the highly anticipated Christmas roast dinner. Roast been the important word there. For our next guests, because they have a fascination, dare I say, an obsession <laughs> with roast dinners. Um, We've Emer McLysett and Esther O'More Donahue, and they co host a podcast called Emer and Esther's Sunday Roast. Good afternoon to you both. Good
12: afternoon. Good afternoon, Ray.
11: To <laughs> you give uh, it its
13: full, full title? Yeah, sorry, its full title is Emer and Esther's Sunday Roast with Emer and Esther. We
11: just oh, we, right. yeah. we just make it as I, I, long I, as I, possible. And you are roast Detectives. This <laughs> roast
13: we are we're the Nicola talents of roast dinners. Yeah. yeah.
11: Right. Jessica Carver's.
12: Fletcher RIP. Absolutely. Um, we've yeah. taken over her role yeah. and
11: we're very serious about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You've done a lot of difficult yeah. work. You've put yourself in yeah, harm's way. Like, carvery <laughs> Confidential. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so before we get to the podcast, just how did you where did the friendship start to you
12: Um, we met through mutual friends a few years ago Mm -hmm. then discovered we lived actually quite close to each other um, in Dolphins Barn at the time and then during the lockdown we started going on our silly little walks together within our two kilometres and there we discovered a shared love of roast dinners, <laughs> carveries. Right. I mean, look, there was nothing to do, Ray. And we fixate <laughs> on
13: things. And that was like, do you think someday we might be able to sit in that pub and have a roast or a carvery? <laughs> and we were, and that was it. And then, you know, we just kind of extended the stupid idea. And I like, of course, then if we did that, we, should, we might as well start a podcast. No, because at the beginning we were like, we went for carvery and I did up. Because we had nothing to do. Like we were bored off our brains. So I made up these little scorecards and we'd have like earwigging potential, a number of roasties on the plate and just something to, you know, yeah.
12: pass the yeah. line. We went for our first roast together in the Patriots Inn in Kilmainham mm. and there was there was great um, eavesdropping at the time—that was very good. There was a group of people waiting for a man <laughs> called John, and John. then we got caught up. And we were like, "Is that John? Do you think John's going to arrive anytime yeah. soon?" Yeah, every
13: time someone new came into the table, it was like, "Miss John your John's not here, oh, Miss John, Look to <laughs> see John, where's John?" We're like, "Where is John?" and we were just bed into the Yorkshire puddings, listening to this family. Anyway, look, as That's, I said, we didn't get so to do
11: like a five out of five for your wigging yeah. that, that was five that out of five. One. John never arrived.
13: John never arrived, arrived <laughs> so we did not know what well, happened to John. But we let's think get your, your, your
11: roast dinner credentials then. So was it something you were brought up with, Esther?
13: Ah, yeah, I think I was lucky. Mum made a roast every Sunday and of course, you know... And
11: was it roast roast chicken every week or no, pretty variety? Was, m-
13: no, more often than not it was like a, a roast beef. There were some years where she was bet into the garlic seasoning. There was a lot of garlic salt going around the place but it was just standard roast and, you know, roast potatoes are very important and me and my brother, you know, if there was one left on the plate, if you got to it first then good luck to you because we were not going to be polite and say, uh, you have yes. that? No, it's fine. Yes. It was just like every person for themselves. Stretch or starve, yeah.
12: Yeah, so, uh, so yeah, mum made a great roast and they're just very comforting and yeah that's what we, we had growing up mm. and yeah. What about you Eimear? Same yeah we used to have a roast every Sunday my mother cooked most of them but my dad stepped in a good bit of the time mm. often had chicken that was my favourite and I preferred a leg and I think I was the only one in the family who preferred a leg so that I was always yeah.
9: can I, very
11: happy. Can I get involved in this? Oh absolutely yeah. Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is
12: that okay? <laughs> Ch- this is A Space Ray share your story <laughs> please please. One thing we've learned since we started this podcast People, is yeah. Everyone has yes, an opinion. <laughs> but more, everyone has like a cosy, lovely story about yeah. their own yeah. roast journey.
11: Well, I'd just better interject there and go, yes, if you have a, a roast story, <laughs> 51551 or Yeah, My dad was was uh, on duty in the kitchen on a Sunday. Mm. And I still can't understand how he got to feed us out of one chicken. Yeah. There were nine children. <gasps> nine children. And we all got a bit of chicken. So 11 people in total. 11 people in total. I
12: thought my mother used to get... Uh, Roast dinner for five people out of a chicken, and then a chicken curry the following day. Well, you see, she that's, was that's a wizard dinner. with a curry. So that's, oh. that's
11: two dinners. <laughs> yeah. Were chickens bigger? <laughs>
13: <laughs> <laughs> they
11: were. Were
13: chickens bigger? Text it yeah, now. Were <laughs> <our laughs> chickens bigger? Maybe our expectations I were lower.
11: <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> maybe that's it. Yeah.
13: But it was. It was the was the plate. What did the plate look like, Ray? Was it padded out with lots of more veg or something? Because maybe we were too we too greedy for protein. Now. Well, of
11: course, of course, mm-hmm. plates were smaller
12: plates just smaller chickens are bigger, and, and we only had. I mean, in the eighties when I was growing up, I feel like the only vegetable available to us was carrots and, like peas. Uh, and peas. Like I don't know, had broccoli made it to cold oh, in the eighties. Oh. No, know. but
11: but that was a nice combination. Yeah, you know, the, 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 mushy peas.
12: We used to have a mushy peas no, soaked this overnight. Is, sorry, lads.
11: Sorry, I was with reading. Uh, I was reading this <laughs> about you. That there's no way you serve mushy peas with a, a roast dinner.
12: I. We have had mu- this table, Emer. I don't. I don't agree with you. I don't. <laughs> we had mushy peas every Sunday. Yeah. With our roast. I, mushy, they, mushy
11: peas, firstly, are a British thing, not an Irish <laughs> thing. And secondly, they're only served with fish and chips.
12: No, no. Mushy no, peas universal We had now. them soak. You put them in on a Sunday or a Saturday evening with the little bicarbonate of soda disc. A <laughs> little And then they'd be served on Sunday. They tasted of literally nothing. <laughs> and, but they were very important. They probably took up a third of the plate now that we're talking about it.
11: So they, they were, they, they, like you couldn't see the spheres. They were all mushed together. Very
12: mushy, yeah. yeah. But they weren't that bright green colour. They were more of a muted... I'm not really selling them here, am I?
11: No, so <laughs> grey-green.
12: Kind of a grey-green. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you can still get them. No, I can see yeah. them in
11: my head, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. a
13: fire ball colour now. People would be going mad for that <laughs> yeah, colour yeah, 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 green. be yeah. should be
0: green. Eamir MacLeissett and Esther O'More Donahue from The Ray Darcy Show. back to you today with Claire Byrne and that series, Quinn Country, looking at the life of Sean Quinn and the comments made about the border communities by Alan
2: Dukes. And Alan Dukes, the former chairman of IBRC and former Fine Gael leader, is here. You're very welcome. Thank you for coming in, Morning, Alan. To put it mildly, there was a strong reaction to what you said on the programme last night about people from the border area. And I want to talk to you about that. But just to remind people, here's what you said.
3: Border people. Have it in their blood. They are living in in communities that have, you know, a long history of violence of different kinds, and they're more easily turned with than anybody else will. You know. I mean, I, and I'm not saying they're 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 different animals from the rest of us, but you know, whether they're they have provo links or v special links or whatever, you know. It's something that's nearer to the way they think than it would be to somebody in South area or anywhere like that, you know.
2: Do you regret saying that?
3: Uh, that's, it wasn't as elegantly phrased as it might be, but the fact is I'm conscious of the fact that people in border areas have suffered more from violence than people in many other parts of the country. That's not what you said. You said they have it in their blood,
2: that they've turned to violence Uh, in a way that people from South Tipperary won't.
3: I'm not saying everybody does that. I'm saying it happens more frequently in border areas and that's been the history, unfortunately, the deplorable history of those areas for quite some time. And I think it's necessary to point out that the atmosphere in which this all happened Uh, was an atmosphere where people were very upset, uh, where people saw a danger to their livelihoods and there was a particular kind of reaction that was seized on by people who then engaged in sabotage and in some kinds of terrible violence. Okay. OK, but 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 what's happening today... No, I'm sorry to cut across you now because
2: this is really important. People are really upset by those comments last night. I was watching it on, on Twitter. I have them in front of me here. Did Alan Jukes just demonise a whole community living along the border? Disgraceful statement. And I expect an apology tomorrow. The messages that we're getting in here this morning echoing the same sentiment. Alan Jukes needs to apologise immediately for his prejudice against the border counties.
3: I am not saying by any means that the people in border counties are violent people. I'm conscious of the fact, as I've said, that they have suffered from violence more than most other parts of the country. The reason for this particular violence is, and this is another part of the programme that I would like to be quoted, the reason for the upset and the opposition was entirely misdirected. It was directed against people who were trying to save companies that otherwise would have gone to the wall.
2: Yeah, and I, and I, and think, and I think in fairness, that is a separate issue. But people who were very deeply offended by that last night would appreciate an apology today. Will you people, give them one?
3: There are people deeply offended by the violence that happened and could have been deeply affected in their livelihoods. By that violence. And that's what I was reacting to. And I don't think that the case that was there was in any way a justification for the kind of violence and sabotage that actually happened.
9: Border people
3: have it in
2: their blood. They have it in their blood.
3: It's it's part of the history of that whole area of the country, which I hope we have gone past now. And I, I, I do not for a moment say that everybody in the border area is inclined to be violent. That certainly wasn't my intention. I don't believe that. I wouldn't believe it for a second.
2: They will more easily turn to violence than anybody else will.
3: Because there seem to be a group of people in that area who will capitalise on Upset and turned to violence, and that was what happened in this case. But
2: you, you weren't referring specifically to a small group of people. You were referring to everybody, to communities in the border area. I
3: was not saying that everybody in the border area. Border is people violent.
2: have it in their blood.
3: It's part of the atmosphere that they live in. It's there. It happens. Violence happens more often in that area and it has for years uh, than in other parts of the country.
2: Yeah, I'm mean, you just endul-
3: for a moment saying that all border area people are violent people, not at all, mm-hmm. far from it. They suffer from violence more than people do in other parts of the country.
2: And do you feel that you should apologise today?
3: For- I feel that if people have been offended by that, I just ask them to accept my statement that I don't for a moment believe that people in the border areas are violent people. What I'm saying and what I wanted to reflect was that they have suffered more from violence.
0: Alan Dukes from Today with Claire Byrne. And it was a varied and moving conversation when Ryan Tubridy's guest in the morning was artist and activist Mary Moynihan. And Mary spoke about the death of her mother and the huge impact it had on her. Very young life.
4: It's forty-one years since my mother passed away in the fifth of December, nineteen eighty-one.
14: Tell me about your mother.
4: Uh, my mum was Helen Moynihan, and she was a wonderful woman. She was born in Kilkenny, and she emigrated to the United States where she met my father. They lived in the Bronx. They met in the Bronx and they got married. But she always wanted to come home to Ireland, so she came home and after they were married, and they bought a house in Coolock. Mm. And my mum always wanted to have children. And she had myself and my brother straight away. We're Irish twins. There's 11 months between us. Very good. And then she couldn't get pregnant again and there was no reason given. And 16 years later, she became pregnant. And she was delighted and my family were so happy. And she had a wonderful baby boy called Edmund. And seven days after she gave birth, she became ill suddenly. And um, a few hours later, she died. And what happened was um, she became ill and my father took her into the hospital and the hospital saw her, but they sent her home. And on the way home, she went into a coma and my dad brought her back to the hospital. But he said at that stage, you know, they were all over her, but it was too late and she passed away a few hours later.
14: There are a few th- things I'd like to talk to you about that. Um, one is that sometimes people have better than experiences than others when it comes to the last words with somebody who then dies unexpectedly. Uh, you had gone you'd you'd talked to your mother that day, hadn't you, when you got home from
4: Yes, um I used to come home from school every day for my lunch and have lunch with my mom and then walk back to school and on this particular day when I came home she was unwell and lying on the couch mm. and I remember sitting beside her on the couch and talking to her for the lunch. And then when it was time to go back, I said to her, can I stay home and look after you? And she said, no, she says, I want you to go back to school. And my mum always had a thing about education. Um, She always wanted her children to be educated and she insisted. I was doing my leaving cert that year. She insisted that I go back to school. So we did have, you know, the petulant teenage Ways We had words and I was cross-leaving and it was the last time I saw my mum and um, it's something I carried for a long time that I never, I found it hard to forgive myself because, because of those last words with her. And yet years later when one of the things that helped save me was that I went back to education because when my mum died, we had a little baby and I had to help raise that child. So I ended up not going to school and I didn't get an education. And when I did go back to education, I always remembered my mum's words that, is, as your lovely presenter was saying, it was an argument of love in a way yeah. because she wanted me to get an education. That's why she sent me back to school where I wanted to stay and look after her. And I was very proud to eventually go back to college. Um,
14: well, if we could return to the point where your where your mum died and you, as you said, there was a little baby in your life then in your world, your, your baby brother. Yes. So how did that work out initially then? Because your dad was obviously on his own and it was you and your your other uh, brother. Yes, uh, Joe. uh, Joe. So tell me about that. How was the mechanic of that?
4: Well, the baby was seven days old and in a way I think having a child keeps you going. My mum was the heart of our family and I remember years later my brother Joe saying to me that even though we were close, when she died, there was no counselling back then. Mm. You were left on your own to handle something like that and it was hugely traumatic and we were all lost in a way in our own grief. And for the first two years, I looked after Edmund. And But I wasn't coping very well. And then at a certain point, my dad did meet someone again and he did eventually become married again, happily married. But he did say to me, he offered for me to raise Edmund as my own as I'd looked after him for so long. But I knew deep down, I don't know how I knew, but I knew that if I did that, it would not be good either for me, but especially for the child, because I was in a place, a very dark place. And at the same time, somebody offered me work abroad in France and I took that offer and I suppose I ran away um, and I, I left. Um, and my dad raised Edmund and I stayed very close to Edmund and I'm godmother to his lovely son, Aid. But at the time I was 17 and a half, 18 and I went abroad to France and I worked over there.
14: It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it, to, 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 to be asked or suggested to by your father, do you want to take the baby um, and, and, and bring him up as your own? And for you at that age, that is not a, a position I would envy to be in.
4: Well, he. I think my my dad did it out of love. Oh, of um, course. And and it was the right thing to do. Um. But equally, years later, I felt looking back, it was the right thing for me to do yes. because the child ended up having a stable home, where I ended up going on a, I suppose, a journey of losing ten years out of my life. But because there was no counselling, because I had no access to deal with what was going on, um, and because my mum had died in circumstances where we were never really told what happened to her, and the attitude back. Then was you don't talk about things like that. There was no inquests, which I, you know, I'll talk about in a few moments yes. about around that, and you were left with a lot of unanswered questions. And
0: Ryan asked Mary about her
4: time in France. When I was in France, um, you know, in a way, I was learning to stand on my own two feet. I ended up in Marseille, which was at the time it has the highest crime rate in Europe as a city. It was there was a lot of violence. And I unfortunately ended up um, suffering from a serious violent uh, assault. Um, And it was, I was, you know, I was young, I was vulnerable. And it made me aware of the the vileness and the destructiveness of gender based violence. Mm -hmm. Um, I accepted a lift from somebody. Uh, It was somebody I had met briefly, very charming person and turned out to be what could only be described as a predator. And I was violently attacked. Now, I managed to fight my way out of that. But um, as I said, it, it, it made me aware of the vulnerability of people. And I, I came home to Ireland and I turned to drink for, uh, as a coping mechanism, I suppose, mm-hmm. and reached rock bottom, as they say, and realised that I if I didn't do something, I wasn't going to survive. What did
14: rock bottom look like?
4: It was just a very, actually, it was like being in the bottom of a well. And there was no way out and it was very dark. I always felt when my mum died that it was like all the colour went out of my life and you lived in a very grey, dark world. And I've always seen myself as strong... And I tried to get through on my own. But what I discovered was you were strong by acknowledging your vulnerability. And for me, that was accepting my vulnerability and reaching out that, yes, I can make it through. But sometimes you need help to get you through the maze of grief. It's like a maze and Mm. you get lost. And I needed support. And I did reach out for counselling. And that step of speaking and, you know, saying to others to help you and to support you through is very important. So I would encourage anybody to do that if you're lost in grief.
14: So you found your way out of the maze and into the world of a much happier world. Yes. And you became a mum a few times over. And would you, how would you describe yourself then post, shall we say, post-Maze?
4: Well, I think there's three things that I would always say saved me. Okay. The first one was education, going back to education. The second one was the arts, getting involved in the arts. And right. the third one was love, the love of family and friends. And I just want to say about education. I remember at about 22, 23, after I started cancelling, I went back to night school did my leaving cert again by night and then I eventually by the I, I didn't get to college until I was thirty and I had just had my first son and he was four weeks old. And I remember turning up on the first day of college and i had the baby with me and somebody was to meet me to pick him up and mind him mm. and i was standing there with all these people around with great excitement and and th- as time went by it was getting closer to the start of the first class i realized the person who was coming to pick up the baby had gotten their times mixed up and they weren't coming so everybody started to disappear going up the stairs to the lecture hall and i was eventually left there on my own and i was thinking this is not going to happen and something in my head said no I've worked too hard for this I took the baby off he was in a sling put him on the ground took off my coat <laughs> and my jumper put the baby back on put the coat my jumper over the baby and my coat over the baby and hit him wow. and I made sure he could breathe
14: Did <laughs> you smuggled the baby in <laughs> And I smuggled to, him into to, the class To, to, to g- guarantee your education Yes
4: And I, I, I often wondered was he the first baby to attend a class in Trinity <laughs> um, <laughs> And then I remember at the end of the lecture he was, he was asleep for most of it as babies do he woke up just as finishing and let out this enormous roar and everybody turned to look at me but they were so supportive yeah. um, and then of course I couldn't fi- get find childcare and I was running out of favours of who would mind the baby as the, the two or three months went on mm-hmm. and Trinity had a creche and I would approach them every week asking for a place. And every week they'd say, sorry, we don't have a place. I'm sure the woman who ran the creche used to run when she saw <laughs> me. And I actually thought about dropping out of college because it was just too difficult with a child. And then again, that thought came into my head and my mum, I remembered mm. her, said no. So I went into the creche one day and I said, look, I'm going to put a picket on your creche next Monday, with myself and my baby, if you don't give me a place in the crash. Amazing. And I got a phone call the following Monday to say they would give me a place after
0: Christmas. Isn't that
14: extraordinary? And
0: Mary spoke about Smashing
4: Times. Well, Smashing Times International Centre for the Arts and Equality was founded in 1991 and it's an arts organisation that uses the arts to promote equality, human rights and diversity. And we work interdisciplinary, which means we work in all art forms, theatre, film, visual art, music, dance. We work in schools with youth Groups with the general public, and we work across border, Ireland and Northern Ireland, and peace building, and about working with about fifty organisations across Europe. And what we do is we tell stories, stories of people who stood up for the rights of others. So, for example, we're working at the moment on stories of ordinary citizens from World War Two oh yeah. who spoke out against totalitarianism yes. and found a way to reach out and support others in times of crisis. So, I'm an artist. And as an artist, we create artworks inspired by these stories. And the idea is, is that you see the the artworks and you hear the stories and hopefully they will. They're a catalyst to generate discussion on what are the values and beliefs that we want to have in our society today.
14: OK, and uh, people can go to smashingtimes.ie to find out how they can get involved or maybe bring you to their schools and yes, help in, in breaking down the barriers you're talking about. Um, A text says I was in school with Mary And I've often thought of her over the years I remember the shock when her beautiful mother Helen died Sending love and best wishes to Mary today From Maura Hunt who's listening in today And another said Sending so much love uh, to Mary this morning The courage to care for her brother And just put one foot in front of the other And my heart hurts for her her loss Um, And I presume the loss Obviously is still with you But you just manage it in a different way I mean the time is not the healer. I I think people think it is, but you just manage it your own way.
4: Yes, I I think it always stays with you. And um, it's like we come to, you know, it's like coming to a crossroads in your life where I think it was the poet Federico García Lorca said, there's no straight line, but intersect, labyrinth of intersecting crossroads. And something happens that changes your life fundamentally. And, you can't change what happens, but what I've tried to do is work on my attitude towards it and try to stay positive and try to let go of things that I don't need and just be true to myself and be be kind to myself and to others and find a way to keep going.
14: It makes sense. What is Ode to a Kulak Queen?
4: Well, this is, um, so, so part of my own artwork is that uh, I wrote a 20-page a spoken word poem called Ode to a Kulak Queen. But give us the
14: first 19 pages of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
4: um, and it, it was actually, it's about, you know, it's a spoken word poem from yeah. a woman's perspective about what it is to come out of a working class environment. And I was actually inspired by another poet, Sylvia Platt. She had this mm. line, about to be true to my own weirdness. <laughs> oh yeah, I like that. I'm all for that. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, and I and so I wrote this, and it's a reflection on on you know on identity, gender, violence, passion, and hopefully redemption. And I I dedicated it to all women we have lost, and to all people who find a way through the darkness into the light. Um, and it's actually being filmed at the moment okay. by Roshan Carney, a wonderful uh, film director. So here's the last few lines from Oh to a Kulak Queen. Sounds good. The women whose names were wiped away, forgotten, denied, their lives betrayed. The babies whose mothers were imprisoned in pain, a stolen love for foreign gain. My mother who died from a lack of care simply because her voice was unheard. Her memory whispers laughter and joy. Her name will echo for you and I. She is the blue of the earth, the sky and the seas, the light of the cloud, the rustle in trees, wise to the unknown, a key to infinity, whispering strength to my vulnerability. One day I shall meet you, my unknowable self. I shall hold you in kindness and sit for a while, listen to instinct, trying hard to let go. I am warrior, my creed is my own. I am constantly changing, yet always the same, Losing my way is part of the game. The end is my beginning as I journey alone, surrounded by love. We are all heading home.
0: Mary Moynihan from The Ryan Tubridy Show. And in the afternoon, Bus Aaron's online booking was the reason own Brophy called Joe on the live line.
7: Hey, Joe. How are you keeping? Doing well.
6: That's I'm good. issue with Bus Aaron.
7: Okay. Right. Busaren, during away. the
6: COVID time well story is during the COVID times bus Aaron had to run buses at twenty five percent capacity due to COVID regulations. And okay. they ran them at fifty percent capacity. Right. In order to make this happen. Mm-hmm. And to make sure that everyone got a seat, they had a seat booking system brought
7: in. Oh, okay, because there was limited seats.
6: It exactly. was limited so, availability, yeah. Exactly. Limited seats meant they had to get computer code in, computer code isn't cheap, has to be paid for two euro booking fee every time you want to book a seat in the bus going anywhere. Fair enough. I suppose it is in usual times. Mm -hmm. Problem is, they still have it in place.
7: Oh, they still have it in place? Yes. So, you have the free travel.
6: Yep. Um, My parents have free travel. I've got free travel. Most of my disability friends have free travel too. And the disability advocate person in the NTA has free travel. And they still pay €2 euro to book a seat online because and you need to be guaranteed a seat, apparently.
7: But if you don't book online, where are you, you're not guaranteed a seat.
6: Indeed. You can rock up to a bus okay. with your free travel pass, wave your travel pass under the nose of the lovely driver and hope that he lets you on if there's room. He or she, yeah. And then you've got to figure out where can you sit that hasn't been booked yet someone else who has booked online and paid their two euro. Well, so it, the simple solution is put a checkbox on the Bus Erin website, tell them I've got free travel, please don't charge me two euro. Just yeah. as it is with the Aaron Roderin website now.
7: <laughs> and but why but, but the other the other sorry, the other way I want is just abolish the two euro booking fee. Exactly.
6: You, so it's fine. not Ticketmaster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, such as they might That's have expected, however, you? I think they're... You won't get away with two
7: different. euro and ticket miles, but anyway... Um, you
6: are quite correct. The Department of Social Welfare say that the spirit of free travel was that no one should have to pay for it if they have it. Department of Transport have deferred to the NDA. The NDA have done their best to get comment from Busseran. Bus legal team says that under Article 9, Section 2 of EU Regulation 118 2011, they're allowed to be equal opportunity grassholes to everyone as long as they charge everyone 2 euro.
7: Okay, now I have a long statement from um, Bus Aaron, they run the intercity mm. services. Um, they say I'll just go to the sting of it. Um, can try to, to reserve a seat on particular reserves for the low fee of two euro per leg. They're saying it's a low fee. They then want yeah, to the say, "That's the
6: collection box your grandmother was going to buy you. Never mind."
7: Okay. 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 <laughs> These customers can reserve... No, Jimmy,
6: you're not getting a selection boxes here. year. Okay. bus Aaron needed to charge me €2 euro to come and see you.
7: Okay, okay, okay. Passengers who have pre-booked a ticket are a guaranteed seat that also offered priority boarding. Oh, I didn't know that. So you get more for your €2 euro than you thought. Uh, not I was all, the, to get on the bus one uh, way or another, weren't you? Re- react to this one, Alan. Not all commercial operators accept free travel passes. Are offered the option for free travel pass holders to reserve a seat in advance, and of those mm-hmm. who do, the expressway booking fee is the lowest in the market.
6: Yes, that's because they're a monopoly. Name any bus.
7: They're company. Not a, they're not a monopoly oh, anymore. But they they do get, and this is the, the this factor. is this is what Bus Aaron do don't refer to. To, Bus mm-hmm. Aaron get over 40 million from the taxpayer every year. Over 40 mm-hmm. million. Uh the, the private companies, I know there's some small arrangements within this some some mm-hmm. companies will accept for example the Lewis accept the um the free
6: travel, the, yes. the free travel and they
7: they get paid four million a year for the free travel. Mm-hmm. So they get paid. Yes. But bus air yes. bus air are comparing themselves to commercial operators, but commercial operators don't get forty one million off the taxpayer every year at least.
6: Cheeky, isn't it?
7: Mm. So, you think the solution is because it's very is, simple, but it, but it basically means that if you have free travel for whatever reason, and you, you pointed yeah. out the number of categories there disabled, um, yeah. uh, age, or whatever. If you have mm. free travel for whatever reason, um, yeah. you have to pay two euro to gar to guarantee a seat on the bus.
6: Yes,
0: that's Owen on the live line with Joe Duffy. Now have you got your Gansy sorted for Christmas? Well on Today with Claire Byrne, Evelyn O'Rourke was at a Christmas jumper workshop.
2: This Christmas with rising costs, there's growing appeal to the idea of using imaginative, cost-friendly and creative ways to celebrate the festive season. And for one sustainable clothing project in Crumlin in Dublin, they're running workshops and swap events to highlight this message. And at the weekend, Evelyn O'Rourke went along to their Christmas jumper workshop <laughs> to find out more. Evelyn, where's your Christmas jumper? Oh, I know, it's shocking. Claire. the
15: joy of radio is that you could have said, Evelyn,
2: I love that Christmas jumper oh, we've you're wearing. Now. <laughs> no, we've cameras now. You'd never get away with it. So you to Richmond Barracks and Inch core in Dublin.
15: That's right. I went along to the fair there because Change Clothes Crumlin, which is an initiative encouraging people really to give their clothes a second or third life in a sustainable way. They were hosting a Christmas jumper workshop there, and the idea was lovely. You are invited to bring along a jumper, you know, that one with the stain that you like to yeah. kind of can't get rid of, but you half, can't really wear it. Half the sequins are gone. Yeah, a little yeah. bit of that. So bring that, and they would help you dress it up for the Christmas season. So children and adults were all welcome. And what was great about it is when I went into the room, you thought you'd be full of plans for arts and crafts with your children you never have the stuff yeah. or you have the glue you have the print stick that's kind of sticky they had everything you know they had the sequins and the fabric paints and the threads and the needles and the scissors and comfortable chairs very important lots of people dropped in during the workshop so here um, we're going to hear some of the voices that we had but one of the people who was really impressive was a woman called Diana and she had brought along a sweatshirt she's Diana Levine she's on Insta as Diana Levine Knits I found out afterwards but here she talked a little bit more to me about her plans for her Christmas jumper
16: Hi there how are
15: you? Wow. (laughs) This is extraordinary. So you've got a a beautiful pink top here and you're doing extraordinary embroidery
16: here. It's it's just running stitch and the sweatshirt I'm making, I made this sweatshirt. You made Um, the sweatshirt? I did, yeah. But this looks like a proper sweatshirt. I made it during lockdown. It doesn't really fit, so I just thought it'd be great as a Christmas jumper. Pink is really hot for the spring, according to the Chanel catwalk.
15: (laughs) So you decided to bring your sweatshirt here? I did. And you're obviously
16: a sewer. You're obviously good at this. I sew and I knit. I just enjoy knitting the Change Clothes Kremlin. is doing a, a fantastic job in terms of what they're doing, raising awareness in upcycling. And I've always upcycled my clothes. Now that this is in the forefront of sustainability, it's a fantastic way to get your creative side to you. Make whatever, save it, and you know, charity shops and secondhand clothes, it's it's the way to go. So you got the pink fabric. Yes. originally yes
15: and made a sweatshirt out of it right yes. so then today you grabbed it for this workshop so yes. what's your plan here i'm am i seeing a christmas tree here
16: it's a christmas tree i was inspired by a knitter you probably have heard of him tom daly yeah. the tom daly yeah. he had a, a christmas jumper this is the inspiration for my christmas jumper comes from tom daly so it's a christmas tree just kind of with threads i'm going to add a little baubles and yeah and do you find it calming like what is it that draws you to this work so I work as an anesthetic nurse at the Children's Hospital. So very high pressure and stress, long hours. So this is my calm. And then I started sourdough baking during lockdown. Didn't we all? <laughs> yeah, but you else. probably kept going. Well, I need a new starter, if anybody out there has a starter. Because <laughs> I killed my starter. <laughs> Uh, it was great because you got to bring your
15: own design to life and Mae Fleming was there, the person running the workshop. She's very gentle, so she goes around. She doesn't criticise, but she supports your sequence decisions. So she says, <laughs> things like, oh, lovely. Maybe would you consider you yes. know, one of those? But lots of people there were like, yeah, down, they were brilliant. But they were all very enthusiastic about that message of recycling and repurposing and making the point that the idea of repairing and mending clothes. You know, as one guy said to me, we've been doing this for generations here in Ireland, so it's good to bring those skills back. So here are some more voices from the workshop, along with Mae Fleming, who was nicely helping us all to make our designs a little bit better.
6: I think that is a good idea to upcycle these. We have a little
15: stain here so we can cover and we can wear it again. You wouldn't have worn this T-shirt anymore, but now with this project today... I think that's a good idea, yeah. Christine, I think I'll hand my jumper to you. I think you'll do <laughs> a better job.
11: Making the most of what you have is always a worthwhile. Having something that you made yourself is always nice as well.
15: Do you think it's something you've become
11: more aware of? Well, I think as a value... Sustainability has always been in the Irish psyche. And most people will go back to maybe what they already know and maybe have a memory of when they were younger as well. I think it's obviously a good thing.
15: It is, it's a great thing. Can you sew? Can I sew? I'm really bad at threading a needle. Mhm. And so that takes me that puts me off then. But if somebody thread the needle for me, I'll give it a lash. But I get very oh God, I'm so impatient, Claire. Yeah. I do love glue. <laughs> Glue. Yeah, I love that yeah. you can get. You know that. You know that magic stuff that you can yeah. use to hem yeah. trousers. That's great. I mean, that that's a, that's great. a lifesaver in our house. That's a really clever one because you do feel like you're still doing something. You do. You do. do. Know what I mean? You feel no, like not you're stapling. No, <laughs> you're not. Up. You're not just stapling the hem up. That is another way uh, to do it. Uh, no, stapling your clothes isn't the way
0: to go. Evelyn work from today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for playback daily. So mind yourself till next time.